If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. That works. Yeah, I think so. Oh, everybody does it at once. <laughs> I wonder if there's anybody out there that can do it at the same time as us. Just like. Oh. I, I haven't memorized it yet, so I guess that's no. maybe a little. <laughs> you know, like, yourself. I don't know. <laughs> In my head, I'm famous. Yes. <laughs> yes. Hi, same Patrice. Here. Hi, Marleya. <clears throat> In our heads, we're mm. famous. We are. <laughs> Every time we come up with a new tagline for the show, <laughs> I, it's really funny because I'm so we're in the new pod basement where Patrice has set up all of the new the podcast stuff in a new area down here where it's a little more soundproof. And like right now, she's sitting in this like armchair across from me and you've got your laptop or your um, your iPad on your lap and you're holding this bourbon drink in your hand. And like, so you, you're lit from underneath and laughing in the dark. Does <laughs> <laughs> it look maniacal? It looks a little, just a little. <laughs> Go ahead, take a picture. We're not going to post this, but I just want to see. Yep, I'm gonna. We're not gonna post it. Is that? Are you sure? Well, it, yeah, it just depends on. Oh, oh, that's funny because it's not as dark on my uh, yeah. screen as it is in my eyes. Oh, also, I just, <laughs> I, also, I just flashed you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try that again. All right. Um. <clears throat> so yes. Ooh. Right now we're drinking a Savannah Mule. Yes, um, it is pretty good. I got these. So I was in Savannah early this week. Yes, I'm, I'm so excited about your trip. Uh, it was fun. We had a lot of fun. I was in Savannah because uh, my husband has a, had a conference, and so like all the stuff was already paid for. So I brought uh, bartender Courtney, <laughs> so that I would have <laughs> so I would have someone to spend time with while he was doing all his stuff. And we went and explored Savannah while he was there because we were like, well, there's already like, you know, space and we already have to drive over there. So, um, yes, it was fun. And we spent like basically all day on Monday drinking. And <laughs> Sounds like a good Monday. Better Monday than I had. And, <laughs> and like hanging out or was that Monday? Yeah, that was Monday. I guess that was the full day we were there. Mm -hmm. Um and uh having a good old time in Savannah. And it was funny because like uh you if you follow us on Facebook, you may see Courtney. I posted pictures and Courtney posted pictures and she hashtagged the strange South. I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, and because she was, we were going around kind of looking at the historical stuff. And I, I was like, it's Savannah. We'll pick a story to do from Savannah while we're in Savannah. Right. Except every fucking thing is haunted in <sighs> Savannah. Everything is like this chair is haunted. These bricks <laughs> on the ground are haunted. Someone died on this street lamp. It's like everything, everything is haunted. Savannah oh. has like, and so you can't turn around without like a murder or ghost story. Oh, wow. Yes. And it's like everything because all these tours they do. They've got like 50 different ghost tours you can take in Savannah, all these like mystery murder tours. And um, I am, I'm serious. I mean, because they've got like pirates. There's like, there's pirate history in Savannah. Yeah. He doesn't love pirates. I know there's pirates and there's like a giant, you know, military fort and it's got revolutionary history and it's got civil war history. And 
it's got like the Underground Railroad and it was built on Native American lands. So and it's just right for the haunting. Like every single red flag we've ever talked about <laughs> on this show coexists so in the streets of, of Savannah. Yes. A lot of salt. <clears throat> So, oh, yeah, and the Gullah, the Gullah Geechee is like mm-hmm. one of the oldest Gullah cultures in the mm-hmm. United States right there. So it's like everything voodoo. We've got all this stuff. So I, right. instead of just being like, oh, yes, I have a wealth of information at my fingertips. I'm like, there's so much shit. There's I have too no, much. like nothing is striking me as like unique because everything is here. Like everything is haunted. Right. And this is down to so the hotel we stayed at was the DeSoto, which used to be the Hilton DeSoto, which <clears throat> I guess burned down in the 60s or something and, and was remade. But even the hotel, and I didn't find this out until after we had gotten there and were there for a while. Even the hotel we were staying at was supposed to be haunted. Mm-hmm. Recently haunted because in 2006, this this soldier from Fort Benning had gone on a bender in Savannah and was staying at this hotel and then went missing for 12 days. And they had these like posters all over the streets, you know, asking who where this guy was and trying to get people to find him. And then people start smelling weird smells in the hotel <laughs> lobby. And they found out that he had somehow gotten into the duct work and, and cut off his own hand in the air conditioning blower, like in the blower fan of the industrial air conditioner. And there's and there follows the lawsuit by the family of like, right. you know, negligence by the hotel, because why the hell should you be able to get into the air handler? Um, right. But yeah, it's like, so even this, and they've said that people say now that they see, you know, ghost soldier in the rooms of the DeSoto. And I'm like, oh my God. It is, oh, so freaky. It's everywhere. It is everywhere. That is, yeah. I, I, I'm just like, you know, in the past, we're not really vacation people. We don't really like do vacation. But after starting this podcast, I like, I'm like, we're going to have to do this this summer. This summer, yeah. we're just like, because it's on a road <laughs> trip. Because thankfully, you know, picking this niche of just Southern ghost stories and strange happenings and bizarre events kind of stuff um, makes it very drivable. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, that's true. I'm not having to catch a flight, you know, to go investigate something. I can just hop in the car and spend a couple hours on the road to go there. That's true. So smart us. Yes. <laughs> All right, I do have kind of a little bit of a post-mortem, just a funny, and I already told you about this, but it's like after I talked about Molly Hatchet, mm-hmm. normally after the show, what I do is I I go through and I add our, um, you know, intro music stuff to the beginning and I adjust levels, blah, 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 do all the boring stuff into audio and then write it out and upload it to the website. I create the webpage and I usually create like, a little title screen that I can put on our episode page. And then I'll take that title screen and I'll put it on Instagram and Facebook. And if we have any photos, I'll attach those to it too. So I've kind of got like this little rhythm of things that I do after we record a podcast. And so I was uploading, we didn't have any pictures last time. I was uploading, you know, the title screen to Instagram and I started like working out my hashtags. I was thinking, and and I really, (laughs) I really don't give much thought. I really don't give much thought to anything in this podcast, honestly. I mean, and that's what makes it so fun because we are literally flying by the seat of our pants on this thing. Um, and so I'm just sitting there. It's like, okay, I got to come up with some hashtags. And so like Molly Hatchet, uh, prostitute, 
What else did I say about her? Like torsos, beheading. I don't think I put beheadings because, oh, my God. So I, I was a little bit more like cognizant of that. But then I'm like sex worker. Uh, what else could I tag Molly Hatchet for? And then I think I lost my stream of thought and started going on to your story. And, um, you know, which, which road, Hollywood Road. And so <laughs> I, put, I put it up on Instagram and like literally like an hour or two later, I start getting, we start getting followed by male escorts. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> what? Why are male escorts like following us? That's just weird. Um, and of course it's, I put, Sex Hashtag worker. Sex worker. Hashtag sex worker. So there you go. Marketing savvy escorts. <laughs> exactly. So there we go. So I hope. So like, welcome, new welcome, audience. Sex workers. This is, you know. Everybody is welcome here. Absolutely. It is an open, friendly, equal podcast for all <laughs> but that was funny that just made me giggle a little bit <laughs> hashtag sex worker yes do you have any other postmortems i was just looking through to see if i had any other postmortems um I don't believe I do. I was surprised I didn't have a bunch of people come out of the woodwork and tell me about Heinz Road. I really expected. Right. Like, but I had friends who texted me and were like, did this person ever go? And has this person ever gone? And I was like, I don't think any of y'all ever went. But m- uh, several people who grew up like are like there or north of there, like my friends from Fife right. and in that area, like they heard of Heinz Road, mm-hmm. but had never heard of the been out there i think they may have even heard of the haunting or something but they didn't know the story really right um and i don't think any of them had ever been out there so and we still have not gone out there that's definitely i was even thinking about it just today i was like oh my god the whole road's probably flooded right now that's true absolutely but uh yeah so anyway so yeah i didn't get like this preponderance of now there were a couple people who reached out on social media about some other story ideas right yeah we are starting to get people um talking to us saying hey have you heard of this and have you heard of that and I may not go into it too big because we want to do kind of a listener episode. Yeah, that's a good talking idea. About you know stories that our listeners have talked about and are telling us about, and it's really interesting, and I love it. And I hope if you're listening to this and have a strange story that you will, you know, you can post right there on Facebook, or if you just want to direct message us on Facebook or Instagram, that's totally cool too. But we totally love hearing it and we're working on putting those into a separate episode. Um, and it's really cool because one of the people that um, contacted us kind of gave me an idea or started me down the road to what I'm going to talk about today. Oh, yes. So um, I totally appreciate. And the other person too, um, one of the main other people gave us, you know, a whole, slew of ideas that we can go research and explore i totally love this i totally love looking all this stuff up and learning the history and oh yeah me too of course i do a horrible job of relaying the history in you know 15 (laughs) minutes or so but i I think we do a spectacular job of drunk history (laughs) relaying 
and and the problem with me is I uh, as I have always done my entire life, I almost immediately forget. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> I've um, immediately, or you know, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Like from brain to mouth, there's like that forgetful zone. Yes, <laughs> yes. Come out. I was gonna say this isn't. <laughs> See, it happened right there. I was like, what am I talking from about? Brain to whole, whole face. face. Hole. <laughs> Where's my hole? Um, <laughs> so, oh my god, that's funny. Uh, yeah, so I can't wait to hear what you're talking about today. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting, won't it? Yes. Uh, who who went first last time? Do you remember? I think you went first last oh, time. Good. Someone drink. So, <laughs> so make yourself at home. Yes. Tell me a story. Tell me a story. Well, like I said, I had a really hard time picking stories, and so it, this is kind of like a, a roundabout of a couple of things that were striking. But there's there's one that I found interesting. So uh, yeah, we we just went around. We drank during the day while Randy's in the conference. You know, we went. We um. We did go on a haunted pub crawl. Right. Which is its own. But I mean, oh, my God, there were so many cool things. Did you know that, like, there are just a billion, like, unmarked graves just all under the streets of Savannah? That's I would it. imagine anywhere that you have war and soldiers mm-hmm. and poverty, they're not going to bury their people in cemeteries. It's going to be like little it's going to be like wherever they can mm-hmm. basically so yes and there were like a two two really huge like yellow fever epidemics too which i think oh, there were unmarked fever was such for a that. huge thing yeah back in the day. Didn't, i feel like you brought that up like on a, a yeah, episode I, I was talking about new orleans because yes. when we talk when we go into our new orleans story which i'm so excited mm-hmm. next week for mardi gras mardi gras uh-huh. <laughs> um that you know i'm gonna tell a little bit of the story and it involves yellow fever you know there's so much of that going on Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, all that stuff is in Savannah history. There's mm-hmm. even there's there are graves that um, are in the runway of Savannah Airport because they had to they they had to uh, to put they put the runway through a family burial plot. Oh my and god! There were certain members of the family whose like immediate relations were like, okay, we'll just we'll take them and we'll put them somewhere else. But there were people that either they couldn't reach or people that just said, no, we're not gonna. Or had do no this. So they were just like, well, all yeah. we can do is pave over you. So there are two unmarked graves in, oh in the runway. Remind the me to never fly into Savannah. <laughs> that just sounds like bad luck waiting to happen. Yes, but you know it's hard to. I mean, we went to these amazing restaurants restaurants over the course of this pub crawl and just I mean I had the best brunch I've maybe not the best brunch I've ever had but it's definitely it like delicious. it is a tie for the top two Absolutely. at the Collins Quarter it was amazing we went to Hitch we went to the Rail Pub which is also haunted as many places like I said ours like mm-hmm. haunted dive bar that offers free fried chicken Fridays and our favorite bar, which was the El Rocco. And it was really funny because it looks like it came straight out of like the 60s. It's got like a gold glitter encrusted um, bar and like there's gold foil wallpaper in like an, on Whoa. all the walls. There's pachinko machines built into the walls. Oh, I don't, um, I'm sorry. I don't know what a pachinko I didn't machine. either. But pachinko is like it's like a Chinese pinball game, basically. Oh, OK. And um, so it's like pull the lever and, you know, shoot the ball up and you're trying to get the ball in a certain slot. Okay. And um, so I played Pachinko because we were like the only people there when we got there at like four in the afternoon. Uh And 
and when we went, it was funny because when we went into the bathroom, the they have, you know, those um, faucets where you have to wave your hand in front of the faucet to get right. it to turn on. And we couldn't get the water to turn on. So when we came out, the bartender was super sweet. He's a really nice guy. And he's like, just there's nobody here. Go to the men's room, you know, you wash your hands and everything. And he's like, I'm, it keeps on going on the fritz. I keep on having to fix it. So when we, we didn't realize that our pub crawl, our haunted pub crawl was going to return to this location later that night. I had no idea which pubs were on this pub crawl. So we walked in and we're like, Hey, and we already know the bartender and we're like hanging out. And, um, we had on the pub crawl with us were these five girls from New York who were there as part of the bachelorette party for the one girl. And she's in her veil and everything like that. And they were Probably a bit far gone by the time they even got on the pub. As were we. I think we had like nine drinks before we even got on the pub crawl. Dang. And then. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so this one girl was like making a big deal out of being a skeptic about like uh, being not, right. you know, she's like, ha, 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 blah, blah. This is not as cool as I thought it would be. And uh, she went to the bathroom. She's like, they so rigged this. They rigged this place to make us think it was haunted. They rigged this place. And um, it was really funny because we we're like, what What are you talking about? And she's like, I could, the, the water won't turn off. You go in and the water won't turn off. And it was, and she what? was, she was probably, she was funny. She was really actually pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and they, they were all fun to hang out with but she um she just kept on going about how they'd rigged this faucet to make everybody think it was haunted and we kept on turning around going it's broken though it's actually just broken like right. nobody's, nobody's nobody's telling you this in. is a, for once this is not a ghost story that's right but we could turn it into one right now if exactly. you want um <clears throat> I think the best story that we got on our ghost tour was of the Marshall House Hotel, which I can share some pictures of, which I don't think I took pictures of. But like from where we were standing when we looked at it and it was like 11 when we got there, Mm -hmm. it was the Marshall, the words Marshall House were just lit up on the side. And other than that, it just looked like a giant red brick warehouse from where we were standing because of the way that the lights were. Uh But what it really is, is like a super upscale, fancy hotel on Broughton Street. And um it had like it had closed in 1956 and reopened in 99 with like massive renovations and it became this upscale place but when they were renovating it in 99 they were down on the lower floors and they said that there were like floorboards that were rotted out on the lower floor so they were they were pulling them up to refloor mm-hmm. and they found like Ugh. just a just a graveyard of bones oh under there oh my god but it was just parts of it was hands and feet and arms and just random like, it's like body parts. You could be a serial killer living in Savannah and nobody would ever would notice. Know, I know. Right? <laughs> You're like, oh, there's some bones there. Well, there's some bones over there. It's like little Mikey dug up some bones on the beach. <laughs> and in 20 minutes, there's a ghost tour headed straight over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, that was very country what I just did. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That sounded so country. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they so they pulled up all these bones that are like, you know, just body parts. And they dated them, though, back to the Civil War. And people started looking in and realizing oh, that wow. the history of this hotel is that it was used as a Union Army hospital during the Civil War. Oh, wow. Because the Union troops occupied Savannah. So it was like, the, it was specifically the Union. And then it was also a hospital during the two yellow fever epidemics right. that took Savannah. So that kind of explained some of the weird shit that had happened at this hotel uh-huh. um like after that so mm-hmm. when they opened like 
they had rooms on three floors that were like vertically aligned. So it was like 214, 314, 414. And anybody who ever tried to stay there complained of this odor, this just nasty odor that they couldn't get rid of. And housekeeping had gone up and used deodorizers and had used ozone machines, even all kinds of shit to get these out. And they couldn't get the smell to go away. So after a while, it said that um, one of the housekeeping managers like had everybody join in the two lower rooms for group prayer and they actually got rid of the smell. What? And then the thing is, they did that on 414, like it worked in 214, 314, but it didn't work in 414. So they went and they did that and it didn't make any difference. So the housekeeping manager took a radio upstairs and he put it in the room and he turned it on full volume on the local gospel station uh-huh. and just left it playing. And when they went back up, there was no odor there anymore and it never came back. Yeah. And I was like, well, fuck, I'd run too. Yeah. I mean, like, who wouldn't really? Right. <laughs> That's the best way to chase anybody out of everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just not getting it. <laughs> just a closer walk. Um, so, you know, that that had happened. There were a lot of people who said that they had heard, like, ghost children pitter-pattering Ooh. through the halls, which I guess could be a yellow fever sort of connection, maybe. I don't know. But there was, there was a story that our guide told of a doctor who was staying in the hotel with his wife and he kept on like his feet kept on feeling like all ticklish and he assumed that his comforter was like just not all the way on his feet and then they he kept on trying to move around feet. he sat up in bed the last time it happened because he kept on like pushing like kicking mm-hmm. you know and uh, he sat up in bed and there was a little girl at the end of his bed <gasps> tickling his feet with a feather and she grinned at him and disappeared that's what holy he, fuck and that's one of the things that he told the front desk staff when he checked yes. out which I imagine was like like within 20 minutes after that happening. Right? <laughs> the holy fucking shit. So that was a fun one. And there were, um, I, you know, it's funny. I was joking with Courtney's friend, um, Andrew, who we met. He's um, He works out there. And he was talking about like some of the best tours that he's taken in Savannah. And he said, there was this one, we took a trolley tour. And we actually, it was an architectural tour. And we actually got to go down this one road that they never take anybody down. Our guide like knew some inside stuff. And he was oh. like, okay, I think I can get you guys down there. I'm going to, and I was like, you know, they all say that, right? And he's like, mm-hmm. what? And I was like, um, he's like, just because you're special, I'm going to take you to this part of town. He's like, oh, my God, that's totally what happened. <laughs> like, so, so, so when my guide says, I've personally heard these stories from people who come on my tours, I never really believe it when they say it. But right. according to my guide, he had personally heard stories from people who had been staying because you can stay at this any room in this hotel. I mean, it's completely open for business and everything. Right. And um, there were people who say that they wake up in the middle of the night feeling feeling like someone is pushing their forehead back and feeling like they have fingers on their wrist. Oh, and he's like, like somebody taking their pulse. It's the nurses oh. from the, the hospitals still wandering around taking oh. taking temperatures with their hands and taking pulses. So I was like, well, at least they mean well. That's right. Yeah, at least they're good. Ask if they'll get them some ice water exactly. or some ice chips. <laughs> Give me some, can you get me some applesauce? <laughs> they didn't have applesauce, maybe. I don't know. Did they yeah, have applesauce? They probably didn't have ice back then either. But so that was my best tour story story but um the the story that i i guess i'll finish up with is um the all the houses have stories right um and there was one of the hampton lillibridge house which we didn't see while i was there but 
um, we, we went to Tybee Island the second day and I picked up this random little book of Savannah ghost stories while I was there. And it's not full of complete gems. It is called, let's see, I will tell you just a second what it's called. Savannah's Ghosts. Ooh. I bet you there are a lot of books there that are self-published called Savannah's Ghosts. Of self-published books. <laughs> so this one is by Al Cobb, who is who is part of a paranormal group, paranormal research group, which kind of knocks the value of it to me a little bit because I'm a lot more interested in like the firsthand stories of what people see than I am in like what their people EVP going readings to are. Look for it, right? Exactly. But the reason that this thing struck me is because you know the thing that everybody seems to know about Savannah is whatever they learned on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Absolutely, it's our poor like, God right there. When right? you who is the face of Savannah? <laughs> Kevin fucking Spacey <laughs> is the face of Savannah, and <laughs> and it's actually a really good book. It's well written. And it's like it's yeah. fairly well nonfiction, and we listened to the audiobook part of like on our way down there too. Right. So it was like fresh well, in my. It was head. just recently that I figured out that it was fucking nonfiction. I didn't know. I didn't I know that like, either. This is nonfiction. I'm gonna have to go back and watch the movie again. Yeah, I would like to watch the movie again and because the book that, is great. that priestess, that voodoo priestess, yep. was on our. You know, I don't know if they call it voodoo. I think it's more um, of uh, root. Okay. So uh, or no. So hold on. I'm going to get the name. See, this is my memory going. Keep talking and I'll remember it at the most inappropriate time. Okay? And then all of a sudden, Patrice is going to scream out a word. you <laughs> be like, oh, okay, move on. Um, so this has a connection to Midnight in the Garden of Good and right. Evil. But I didn't want to do his house that, you know, his murder, the murder and everything happened in from that book. If you're not familiar with the book, I'll explain just a tiny bit of it in a second. But, you know, as I saw the Mercer Williams house and I took photos of it, but the tour wasn't happening at the time I was there. And I was just like, yeah, tours. Wow. But so I'm, I'm reading this little guide that I got and um, it talks about this Hampton Lilybridge house. And I see the name Jim Williams in it, which is the the character, the person, the real life person that Kevin Spacey played in the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, Jim Williams <clears throat> was a wealthy bachelor. Mm-hmm. And he is kind of not single handedly, but is like really significantly responsible for a lot of the restoration and renovation that happened to historic Savannah houses. He like flipped like 50 Savannah wow. houses and he was an antiques dealer. Uh-huh. And he had a really good sense of like the architectural mm. like themes and everything like that. And so and, and, and he, he, had he seemed up. to be I mean, loaded. If, yeah, yeah, he had the hookup. Absolutely. And so he restored like two splendor, like at least 50 homes before he died um, in Savannah. And the Hampton Lily Bridge was one of the ones that he restored. So um, it originally was in a completely different place and when he bought it he wanted to move it to a different street so he'd like had the house moved from from Bryan Street to East Julian and um when he did it like the house next door collapsed and killed one of the workers there oh, wow. um so that was the beginning of some of the the problem with this house but mm-hmm. um in case you're not familiar with the story of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil um Jim Williams was uh arrested in 1981 for shooting to death his assistant who was also his lover um danny hansford and he was the only person in georgia ever to be tried four times for the same crime wow and he he was arrested in 1981 and he was finally 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 acquitted after four different trials of hung juries and overturned verdicts um in what 1989 he was acquitted and six months later he died of fart of fart failure (laughs) (laughs) 
This is what happens when you get too excited. The words, they all just string together. That's all right. That's all right, because I remember my word. Hoodoo. Hoodoo. She's the hoodoo priestess, right? <laughs> hoodoo. Hoodoo. Okay. Sorry. Because there is a difference between hoodoo There's and hoodoo. Difference. We know this. Heart failure is what poor Jim Williams slandered now Jim Williams died Either way, of. it's just a bad way to go, right? <laughs> it's a bad way. Can you imagine what the oh. death of fart failure would be? <laughs> it's just like your entire body just like, blows expands. up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So, oh, onward. Yeah. Uh, Jim Williams <laughs> died. In uh, people say, I don't, this is like one of those ghost story contested things, but people say he died in the same place where uh, Danny was shot. Okay. And then they say that it's the vengeful ghost of Danny Hansford that came back and killed Jim oh. Williams six months after he was finally acquitted for this crime. All right. Symmetry. Yes. Symmetry. Exactly. So this is the guy who, and he, Jim Williams was a skeptic. He didn't particularly believe in right. spirits or haunts or any of that. And Hanks. So, uh, you know, he's moving this house. The house collapses, kills the guy next door. Turns out the house was also at one point in its history, a boarding house. And a sailor had hung himself in one of the upstairs rooms at one point before Mm. all this happened. But um, the stories that it's the stories that Jim himself told of the haunting of this house, which I found were interesting. And this is why it caught my eye in this book. So there was an interview that was done by a... um, a TV or a talk radio personality was his name, Burt Womack, Burl Womack, who interviewed Jim Williams in the 60s, um, 1964, about this house and about the stories they were starting to tell because the the workmen were consistently talking about like their tools going missing and hearing strange noises. And he really didn't take it particularly seriously mm-hmm. because they're having to do a lot of their work late at night on this old historic house that's, you know, it's dark, it's creepy. Right. And they're probably, he's probably thinking they're scaring themselves. Like I totally would. That's yeah. I mean, I imagine that's out. what he, and I, yeah. surely there's a lot of that going around mm-hmm. like in Savannah. Right. So he um he does this interview with this guy because the stories have started to get a little bit more extreme than that. And um it turns out that the the workman told Jim that um <clears throat> they were working in the basement of the house one night, putting the floors in, and when they were finishing up, they heard lots of people upstairs running up and down the staircase. And the problem was there were no stairs upstairs at oh. that point in the renovation because the house didn't have the foundations done yet. Right. And so there was like a ladder that ran up through the found, you know, the, the skeleton of the staircase to the upstairs, but there were no stairs for people to run on. And these people heard it the next night and they heard it the next night. And, um, so he at the, at the time was living in an apartment across the street from the house while they were working on it. And the workman came over and said, like, there's people who are over there that aren't supposed to be over there. We're out of here. Like, we're leaving. Right. And they all quit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, oh, work stoppage. He's like, I'm going to be I'm going to be way behind schedule on getting this shit done. Right. And so that's what his concern is, is like his work is getting stopped. And then he, you know, he keeps on hearing more things like they go and check it out. They never see anybody. And then they start hearing all these other stories of noises in the house in daytime and at night. And in this in this interview, he says, I am not superstitiously inclined. Um, But he said 20 or 30 different people had heard similar noises. And he said, it's not the sorts of noises that would be made by like a house settling that you might expect in a 
in an old house like that or the creaking or the wind or anything like that. He said it's a sort of noise that would be made by people breaking furniture up, knocking doors down, walking heavily or laughing and talking in low mumbled voices. And 20 to 30 people heard this. Um, and how and could 20 to 30 people be wrong? <laughs> well, it's like what you were talking about before. It's like, you know, it's uh, people obviously are having some experience. We can't explain what it is, right. but people are obviously having some experience. Exactly. Um, and he said that, um, you know, the radio host asked if they'd ever seen anyone up there. And he said he's laughing through this interview. Jim Williams is. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, yeah, there's an old gray haired gentleman in a dressing gown that appears with a white cravat on. And people see him glaring down his nose at the people on St. Julian Street from one of the upper windows. He always looks haughty. He always looks like he's just like put out, put out, mm-hmm. staring down at the people there. And um, when it happens, like the one time that the first time that they mentioned or second time that they mentioned it to him, he said he wasn't home. He had gone shark fishing. Oh, it's like, oh, what, a, what a blessed life you live. Absolutely. He'd gone shark fishing and the house was completely empty and locked. There weren't even any workmen there when it happened. But it was like a real estate agent had passed by and she had a group of eight people looking at the house for like architectural historical reasons and everything. And they all saw him. And then he turned around and disappeared in the window. <sighs> Wow. And um, so, you know, he's he's the, the radio guy is saying, like, did this slow down the schedule of renovation for the house? And he said, tremendously so. I was very much shaken up by he's shaken up by the fact that the house isn't going to get done on time. Still right. at this point, he's like, I'm sh- I'm not shaken up by these ghost stories. I'm shaken up by like the schedule. Right. Um, but, you know. So uh, he said there was one real good instance and this 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 is a really good ghost story for this house and i'm just gonna read mostly what jim said this is straight from jim williams who owned the house and he wasn't there when it happened but he said three of my friends were outside um he said uh the brick masons again because keeps on happening throw down all their tools and say that they're quitting and um, they're not going to work anymore. He said, my friends, one of which is a research scientist who is a non-believer in supernatural things. The other one is an advertising artist. And the third is a very athletic young man, a lifeguard who's not afraid of anything. And uh, they were standing outside when the brick masons took off. And um, the lifeguard was like, there is nobody up there. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to see what's going on. So he runs inside. It's like late in the afternoon. It's starting to get dark. And he went all through the house and he got up to the third floor and um, he raised the window and he said, there's nobody here. There is nobody here. This is like absolute ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, so the brick masons don't give a shit what he says and they get right. in their car and they leave. And the other two guys went back to their apartment, which was also across the street from the house. And then they heard this like blood curdling scream. Oh, And they run out and they realize their other friend never even came out. You know, they're kind of thinking he's coming after them. Their other friend never even came out of the house. So they run into the house and they go up and they they can't find this lifeguard. And they finally go all the way up to the top floor, one floor above where he had opened the window. Right. And he was stretched out next to an open chimney shaft, it says, that went four stories down to a concrete slab in the basement. They took him across the street to their apartment, tried to sort out what had happened and he said well on three stories of the house i found nothing and on the fourth story just out of curiosity i went up and when i got to the center of the room he said it was if i walked into a pool of cold water and i lost all control over my body movement i was being drawn towards this open chimney shaft as though by a force and he said when he was just a few feet away he thought the only way he was going to be able to get control of the situation was just to fall on the floor Uh which he managed to make his body fall on the floor um 
only a foot and a half from the shaft. And if he had fallen, he would have oh, died yeah. four stories down onto concrete. And while he's telling this story, he's sitting down with the other two friends. There's, you know, so you're sitting, looking at each other, three people. There's like a triangle of space in between you. And um, one of the friends said, well, the only thing I know Jim could do is to have this house exercised and like exorcised. Right. And at the moment when he said the word exorcised, a woman's voice a scream came from the center space between the three of them, that open space. But like, and they're standing right in front of each other. Right. And um, the scientist. Chills. I know, right? The scientist who didn't believe in any of this shit Mm -hmm. shot up in the air and said, what on earth was that? (laughs) And at the moment, and at that moment, just seconds from the first scream, there was a second scream again, right between the three of them in this little triangle of space. And the young man, the lifeguard who had gone up, went into like a trance. And um, he said that was the absolute worst, like worst incident that they ever had at this house. And they actually said that they saw the dude with the white cravat in in the house shortly after that happened. They looked across and they thought Jim had come home from a party and was standing in the upstairs window and that he hadn't gotten home yet. So... um, and the only thing that they ever found was that I guess in the spot where they had moved the house to, there was like an empty burial crypt underneath that was made of this like limestone oyster material that's supposed to basically break down the body inside. But it was 200 years old. It was like revolutionary right. time. And so there was nothing inside. Right. But they were like, oh, it could be that. Or it could just be the fact that every fucking thing in Savannah is haunted. So, right. you know, was- Indian land. <laughs> spiritual hoodoo whatever yep so that's that's jim (gasps) williams from jim williams own mouth wow who does not believe in this stuff or did not when he was alive um so yeah so i wonder like how long it took him to finish that house and what happened he lived in it too what he moved in he he lived there on the fourth story on the third floor i don't know maybe they blocked off the fourth floor paint blues but i'm up. and i'm pretty sure this is one that they now have like the private residence sign out front of now oh. that like they don't want people but you know it's funny because it was like the most haunted house in savannah i was like everything's the fucking most haunted house in savannah right but it's like i don't think you can tour really do anything with this one i think well, it's like actually you really people. wouldn't want to first of all mm-hmm. and it sounds to me like you could just like look at the fourth story or third story and see if you can see the guy with the crevasse yep <laughs> wow that just gave me shivers i'm out of drink so i think we'll take a little intermission pause and come back (laughs) and we're back (laughs) yes refresh the drinks Mm -hmm. refresh the body but not the mind Mm -hmm. Really wish the mind would refresh, but <laughs> not. What you got, Patrice? All right, I'm working on it. Okay, so I had that um, message exchange with somebody, and I will talk about. Like we said, we're gonna we're gonna work something out. Where we'll do listener stories, um, and it kind of got me thinking because I looked up his story, and. I'm thinking, you know, this would be kind of a good segue into something that, as a graphic designer, it's like, 
I'm interested in the visuals of it. Like, I really love Victorian decorated, uh, like the embellishment of the Victorian age, like the lace and, and all that. And just some of the aesthetics, which I don't know, again, much about the history of this. There's like this huge spiritualist movement. Mm. You know, everybody was having seances. It was, oh, yeah. It was kind of like the thing. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that during this time, this kind of became popular because it was um, during the 17th and 18th century. Is that right? No, during the 18th and 19th century mm-hmm. um, that this became popular. But so I've been like down so many different little shoots of this topic and whatnot. But I'm just going to start off before I tell my story talking about Gibsonton, Florida. Okay. Do you know anything about Gibsonton, Florida? I don't think so. It doesn't ring a bell. Excellent. <laughs> All right. And this that's very hard for me to say, so I apologize if I don't say it right. Excellent. So. Oh, Gibsonton. <laughs> Both. Uh, Gibsonton was famous as a sideshow wintering town. A sideshow. Win- so is this where it's this where is- the freaks go in the winter? Absolutely. No way. So, and I mean freaks in the best possible yeah, way. And, and that's and we're going to talk about that. Right. Um, so this is where various people in the carnival and circus businesses would spend the off season, placing it uh, placing it near the winter home for Ringling Brothers Circus in Tampa, Sarasota and Venice in various times. Oh, cool. Um, it was also the home of Priscilla, the monkey girl, the anatomical wonder, the lobster boy, the Siamese twin sisters ran a fruit stand there. And at times, um, it was the only post office with the counter for dwarfs. Aside, oh my God. No way. So aside from agreeable, like winter like they were snowbirding down there basically um so gibsonton offered a unique circus zoning law that allowed residents to keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawns <laughs> that is so flipping cool <laughs> <laughs> so gibsonton or they also call it gibbs gib town um is the location of the international independent showman's association which they also have the independent International Independent Showman's Museum down there. Okay. Go to there. Absolutely. (laughs) And so this was basically um, an organization made up of people in the outdoor amusement industry. Um, The original club was built, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) There's there's like um, over 4,000 members all over the U.S. um, that are members of this club. So this is currently existing. This is. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, they had their heyday, and, and we'll talk about that too. So, um, well, now Cirque du Soleil owns everything in the circus, yeah, right? <laughs> so, Gibtown um, is also home of the largest trade show in the carnival industry. Exhibits include rides, food supplies, equipment, concession trailers, electrical supplies, insurance companies, novelty items, plush toys, and jewelries. Currently, now, still the biggest. I. That's what. That's what I was like. The reason I ask is because my first job out of college was with the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. What? And we had our national, like <gasps> our national conference, our big like convention center. Fit, like we put rides in the Georgia Dome, like roller coasters. What the fuck, Marley? How Tampa- come I didn't know anything about this? It was, you know, it. 
like as far as cool jobs go, I mean, they had like a popcorn machine in the front lobby. Oh, <laughs> it was like so old. So anyways, yes, the entire convention smells like funnel cake, but continue. Oh, my God. That would be such a hard job not to continuously eat funnel cake. <laughs> okay, so they have the Gibbstown International Independent Showman's Museum, which houses on two floors a wide assortment of antique equipment, which I'm dying to go look at. No kidding. Historic printed materials. Again, graphic designer dying to look at. Ooh. And detailed exhibits that tell the carnival story. Most of it was donated by practicing carnies, and these carnival items um, from across the country reflect nearly a century of carnival experiences that have been donated. So there is so much shit here that is going to be amazing to look at. Oh my, where, do you know, where in Florida is Gib, Gib? Gibson? So I think it's more like Northwest, okay. North Central West, how do you describe like... <laughs> this is the way this is the way you describe directions when you're not sure of what the answer is. I'm pretty sure it's north, central, east, west. Exactly. <laughs> In that order. <laughs> uh, you're like, don't you have Google Maps? Fucking look it up. Like, look it up. <laughs> All right. That's, that's too much work. <laughs> okay. So, um, they have uh, they feature photos of carnival setups throughout the years, particular focus on carnival transportation um, and the role that Gibson Town played in carnival history. The, the museum has one of the first Ferris wheels in the country. Oh, cool. Which is assembled right in the middle of the exhibits. Visitors can enjoy artifacts as a slinky black beaded costume worn by the famous. Oh, I love this. I want to go say this. <laughs> So a slinky black beaded costume worn by famous burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee. No. Uh-huh. As well as the outfit worn by the Viking giant Johan Pearson. <laughs> okay. Visitors are also able to walk through carny trailers, which open to transform from a dull looking compartment into brightly lit and ornated facades. Okay. That makes more sense. I was like, carny trailers, like the trailers of carny. Cause I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be something I'd want to walk right. through. Like <laughs> Cheetos everywhere. And like, <laughs> this is like empty PBR. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so a couple of interesting things about Gibbstown as far as being like, in the media. So the town was uh, the setting for the acclaimed 1995 X-Files episode Humbug, which was actually filmed in Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, the episode is about sideshow performers, but does not star any of the town's actual residents. So oh, that's just moved locations and did it like up, I guess, because it's colder and you don't sweat. I don't know. <laughs> Lame, X-Files, lame. Exactly. So, um, also, the town featured prominently in the Dean Koontz book, Twilight Eyes, which uh, featured a character who sought refuge in the circus community and came back to Gibtown with um, them as a traveling season grew to a close. The town was also the title character in the fictional first-person lyric. Okay, we don't know these people. You do know the Babylon Minstrels? No. Okay, obscure band. <laughs> Not relevant. <laughs> Sorry, obscure band. Um, Gibson 10 was the inspiration for a novel called Kaleidoscope by Daryl Wimberly, who was um, written, who has written other novels and nonfiction set in West Florida. West hmm. Florida. Okay. And then <laughs> West. <laughs> West, Northwest Florida. Oh. Right. <laughs> Shut up. 
And Gibsonton was the setting for an episode of a Florida-based A&E crime drama, The Glades. Oh. And an episode titled Gibtown, obviously. Like, <laughs> Gibtown. Yeah, uh, featuring, you know, retired circus performers. So that's basically... Right now, it's basically a place for retired circus performers, um, such as, you know, Percy the Monkey Boy, the Human Blockhead, Al Thornquest, who was the eight-and-a-half-foot giant, and the um, Bertram Siamese Twins. Cool. It's also in a couple of other novels and um, was visited by Kevin Smith in Roadside Attractions um, segment for The Tonight Show. All right. There's also, I keep saying that, there's also, <laughs> um, there's a really good article called Welcome to Gibtown: Town, The Last Freak Show in America by Kim Wall and uh, Katerina Clerici, uh, and it's done through The Guardian, which is like a UK oh, okay. paper. Actually, I think it's their US version, but totally, you know, look into this. It's very cool talking about like the heyday when they hit their heyday, I think it was back in the 60s and I mm-hmm. think I think with like uh freak shows and side shows with the coming of the 60s and 70s and the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and um people with disabilities becoming more acceptable to work in public and hold down jobs and not be ridiculed or made fun of mm-hmm. um it had a huge effect on sideshows and uh, freak shows because, you know, they were becoming more integrated into uh, society at this point and weren't made so much fun of. Mm-hmm. But during the 18th and 19th century, um, people would go out, and this is like pre-Civil War, during Civil War, after Civil War, um, people would go out and look for people with disabilities, people with odd oddities about them, people who didn't look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And they would either procure them, like their family would sell them to the circus, or they would kidnap them. No way. And this is one of the stories that I want to talk about, because this came out a couple of years ago, and there's a book um, about this by journalist Beth Macy called True Vine. And this is the kidnapping of the Muse brothers. Uh, so the book's called True Vine, the two brothers, a kidnapping and a mother's quest, a true story from the Jim Crow South. Oh, this is really interesting too. I love this story. Um, Cause it has such a really like tragic beginning. Um, and then this, you know, it's about the kidnapping of the two boys, uh, but truly it's about this mother who, after like three decades of looking for her boys, did not give up. And she totally, especially during this time, um, you know, faced a lot of um, dangerous obstacles for a black woman during that time to mm. get her boys back. And that's the story. Goodbye. No, <laughs> <laughs> no give me more. <laughs> okay. So the two boys, they were born in a small town near Roanoke. Virginia? Um, Virginia. Okay. So this is, and I think that's what Vi- True Vine was the name of the town or the settlement. It was like, it wasn't 
it was more like just a community. Okay. Um, you know, so it was a tobacco farming town and their mother was a sharecropper. So she was a, um, she was a single mother working as a sharecropper after the civil war. Um, sorry, (laughs) after the civil war and as soon as her boys could like work in the field, they were working and they worked day, daylight to dark, um, which they called the can see to can't see. <laughs> or sometimes they just call it to can't for short. And I guess that's like, you know, how they uh, they talked about just the daylight hours. And none of them, they were illiterate. None of them had been schooled. They were strictly there to work the land in order to survive. Because again, mm-hmm. um, it, it, we haven't we didn't have civil rights, you know, back at the time. So they were not slaves, but in the sense they still were, mm-hmm. where they were just like just working out their existence um, in order to live. Now the thing about the boys, um, they George and Will Muse um, were albino. Oh. So this is what made them unique, right? So, um, let's see. Bum, bum, bum. So they were albino. They weren't twins, but both of them were albino. Um, George was nine and Will was six. So there was three years between the two. And they were working these farms when they were abducted from Trueville, Virginia, and forced into the circus. I just keep, like, immediately on these, like... Do albino children like who work in the fields get super bad like skin? Yeah, so this is like, what, this is one of the things that they did talk ooh. about. They were talking about um, really they had a hardship in the field working because their skin burned easily. I bet, and they had problems with their eyes as well, mm-hmm. um, which lasted into adulthood. They eventually went blind, mm-hmm. but they had like a degenerative eye disease that was ultra sensitive to light their skin was ultra sensitive to light they didn't have the pigment to like you know Mm -hmm. keep them from burning um so it was really a hardship and they were working in the fields you know at nine and six oh wow and so somebody from the carney heard about them or somebody who decided they were going to sell them to the carney heard about them and this is very like don't know the exact story behind this but they were sold um, into the circus and, uh, you know, their white skin and they had like dreadlocks. They were like very unique looking um, and it made them kind of a main attraction huh. eventually in the circus. So they went from like sideshow to sideshow um, to small circus and finally they worked for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, which was the greatest show on earth during that time. Um, and that show exploited them and had them pretend to be like cannibals. And they also called them the sheep headed freaks and the ambassador for Mars in these shot sideshows. Um, but the brothers basically came, became the main act of Barnum and Bailey's uh, circus, and they played to huge crowds at Buckingham Palace, 
And they sold out the show at New York's Madison Garden during this time. So they were abducted like in 1899. So if you want to get a time frame. So early 1900s is kind of like 1920s when this was all going on. Um, It's so weird to think of like the the like freak show centric circus going to Buckingham. (laughs) But it was a huge thing. So, you know, we're coming out of. Oh, God. Uh, coming out of the Victorian age, I don't know how long the like when the actual dates for the Victorian age, and I don't know if that was before Civil War. See, history person, I am not. I need to figure it out. But it's kind of like that carryover, and there was this huge, as far as entertainment, circuses, like were the main entertainment of rural America during this time. Mm-hmm. So late 1800s during a restoration. And uh, early 1900s, if you lived in a rural area, which the South is mostly rural area, the only entertainment that you got besides the excitement of Christmas was the circus coming into town. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was for everybody. It it was for whites and black during the day, although there was still segregation. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, okay, there were international stars but throughout this time, their mother, Harriet, refused to accept that they were gone. Um, she had heard that somebody had, t- like, people talking that somebody had took them and they were in the circus and she couldn't, like, go out and follow them. Um, but, you know, she spent, like, the better part of three decades trying to find them and get them back. Wow. Okay. And um, the story didn't really come out until like it, it came out like in 2015 um, and it was closely guarded into that same community because um, because because of what happens and I'm sorry I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna tell you this because I don't have this written down <laughs> exactly right um, so this the person that wrote this it took her like 25 years She had dedicated like 25 years in order to try to get the story from one of the descendants of the brothers because it was so closely guarded, um, the true story of it. And she was actually like one of the brothers was still alive. And she wanted, you know, when she first heard about this, she wanted to interview the brother and um, the grandniece who was taking care of him would not let her see the brother because she's like he's been exploited all his life you're not going to interview him he's going to live a happy life without any of your mess Mm. which i could totally respect okay but anyway let's see so she spent 30 parts of the mother harriet spent like 30 years looking for him and let's see let's talk about harriet muse a little bit so she was an illiterate black maid um during the harshest of the Jim Crow segregation era, they were living in a city where the top cop there was the founder and leader of the KKK. Oh. And, um, and she was, you know, a sharecropper in rural Virginia. She didn't get to go to school and, um, she didn't know, you know, where her sons were at any given day and what circus they were with until like 1927. And she told relatives that she had them come to her uh, or had it come to her in a dream that the circus that was coming to Roanoke, which is about, I think, an hour away from Truvine, 
uh, that her boys would be there. Mm. So her boys, 30 years, they are, they're like in their thirties, almost 40 at this time. They're still performing. Uh, the men that had kept them, they don't get, they don't get paid. It's like they perform and all that they have going for them is, um, you know, room and boarding basically and food. And, um, and so they're living this really just meager existence, performing as the top show for this huge industry and basically treated Ooh, like the animals. Shit. Um, and ridiculed every single day by people gawking at them mm-hmm. and whatnot. But one of the things they, you know, they were different. They were uh, presented as different kinds of, of things uh, during the course of their circus career. And at one time, somebody threw, they were taking pictures of them. Somebody threw like some musical instruments at them to like have them pose. And they picked them up and they had like a knack for music. Mm-hmm. So they taught themselves how to play, uh, you know, these musical instruments. And they could pretty much play any song that they heard first time they heard it. Oh, cool. So they became really talented at that. So 1927, she heard that the circus was coming to Roanoke. And it's pretty much, you know, kind of a suicidal, bold thing that she did because uh, she went, she found them. They saw, after 30 years, they saw um, her watching them when they were performing their act at the sideshow. And the thing about sideshow, so the circuses at that time were segregated. So they would have a black day. Um, and then they'd have a white day mm. and, but the side shows were pretty integrated. Mm. There was no likes, it was all standing room only. So it was pretty much anybody that paid, you could sit there or stand there and watch the acts. So she came in, um, during one of the days that they did the performance and the boys recognized her right off. And mm-hmm. so they had like this huge reunion right in front of everybody. Well, at that time, uh, eight of the police uh, men from that uh, area came in along with the lawyers from the circus who traveled with the circus show. So they had like, she had, she stood off like eight policemen oh, wow. and just a bunch of lawyers um, who immediately came in because the boys wanted to go home with their mom. Because mm-hmm. when they were kidnapped, the person that took them told them that their mom had died. So they didn't even know they, they were like thinking that she, you know, had been dead this whole time. Oh, that's awful. I mean, the whole thing's awful, but yeah, the whole thing is awful. Um, and so they see her and they, you know, they reunite, but here comes the ringling lawyers and the eight policemen. And, um, she successfully argued for the return of her sons Wow. And immediately she went and hired a very, um, what did they call him? She hired a um, very ambitious white lawyer and filed suit for back wages against the greatest show on earth. Nice. So, you know, she may not have had a formal education, but she was ready you know, but she know how things work. (laughs) Absolutely. Take on. So, um, she filed suit, sued them. She won. Awesome. And it's not known how much money that she won from this suit. However, she had remarried during this time period and her husband, the Muse brothers, stepfather, 
took all that money. So they never saw any part of it. So she actually like, she won the suit. She, um, the boys went back home to live with their mom and stepfather. Stepfather took all the money. Oh, fuck and so you. Now, and, and they were living, they're living in poverty. So she's still a sharecropper or, um, yeah, she's still a sharecropper at this time. And, you know, they're living in a one room house, basically. And so, you know, you have four people in that one room house. It has no plumbing. There's an outhouse. So mm-hmm. no running water is an outhouse. And so they have no money because the stepfather um, took it all. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Right. So the boys went back to the circus in order to make money to help support their mom um, live after that. Mm-hmm. So they like actually went back to the circus, but they went back on their terms and made sure that they were paid and compensated. So it wasn't as horrible after this because they were paid as employees hmm. and then they were able to send, um, you know, money to their mom eventually. So they retired. They kept re- performing um, and their lives got better once they'd been compensated and they were allowed to visit their mother. And um, there's photos and you can tell that they were happier during that time. Mm-hmm. They eventually went blind and retired in 1961. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah. And so their sister and eventually their niece and their great nieces or niece ended up taking care of them. George died. So the oldest one, the eldest one died in 1972. And Nancy, the great niece or the grand niece, uh, took care of Willie until his death and she wouldn't let um, this lady, Beth, write or interview him until his death, um, which was like 25 years after they had first met, after she had first wanted to do this story. So did she She let him, so, she let her interview him so, right before he died? No, she didn't let, no, he died. Oh, but she couldn't release the story but until she he wouldn't, died. Well, actually, um, Nancy wouldn't tell her the whole story. Mm. So she has heard bits and pieces, you know, and there was like in that community, there was kind of like a cautionary tale saying that, you know, if you're young, do not go into the circuses because they will snatch you up and then you will become like um, Echo and Ico, um the circus brothers, mm. the Muse brothers. Is that what they went by in the circus, Echo and Ico? Um, Yes, I believe so. And so eventually uh, Willie died and then Beth, let me find, Beth Macy, um, got the full story and it ended up being not so much about the Muse brothers, but more about the mother mm-hmm. and her dedication to finding her boys and bringing them back home. And then taking on the largest entertainment industry at the time in the South where there was nothing, but, you know, um, she was facing nothing but hostility and um, just all kinds of different uh trials and tribulations trying to you know stand up but she was obviously quite a woman Mm -hmm. and um you know got her money she she never married that loser (laughs) but her boys took care of her and that's the story of the muse brothers oh that's cool so started off really shitty and there's a book and i want to read the book 
Um, cause the book goes more into like actually what they went through. Cause Willie told Nancy, um, about, you know, just the really horrible stuff that happened Ugh. when they were first kidnapped and how they were treated. Um, God, I can't like, I don't know why I can't believe that the circus oh, would there's worse people. stuff. There, there is worse stuff. And that's why that story that I sent or that, um, that guy from Georgia sent that I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to talk about it, but it's horrible. And it was just during that time, like during the freak shows, it's like these people, these men who are wanting to make a fast buck, um, going through and exploiting people who were uneducated, may have had a mental um, deficiency or, or cha- mentally challenged or had um, or were constantly ridiculed about how they look. So there's like this thing, you know, about, yeah, it gave them a place where they eventually got paid for being ridiculed and laughed at, which they were doing that at home. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't just go out and work at like the family store or the post office or hold a job because of all the ridicule um, that, you know, these people were facing. So, but they didn't actually really get paid. I guess it depends on who you went with. Mm-hmm. More than likely, they didn't get paid as employees. The people who were managing them were the one that kept the money, and mm. they were just living in existence. So it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, at the very least, it's tragic and fascinating. And I'm sure there were some happy stories that came out of it. Um, eventually, you know, the Muse brothers eventually ended happily. They would. They ended up, you know, having a better life at the end. But, um, yeah, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. And then you have Gibbstown, which has, like, all the carnival go. banners and sideshow banners, like, of all these artists that were, like, did the paintings for the sides of the, you know, traveling trailers and stuff. And it just sounds amazing. You know, I need to go look because I don't know. I can't remember if it's mine or if it's my brother's or if it's Randy's, but in my house we have, you know, one of those um, cylindrical poster containers. We have an old Ringling Brothers um, poster right. that <clears throat> is super cool. I mean, it's an awesome, but I don't, I don't support this. Like, I don't go to, for PETA reasons, like, oh, for yeah, animal absolutely. reasons, I don't go to the circus and haven't for years and years and years and years. Right. But I was like, oh, they did do some pretty awesome, like, cool posters. Right. Yeah, yeah, so there's like the whole thing of, you know, during the 60s or 70s, um, I read somewhere and I could totally be making this up as far as like the position, but it's like one of the governor's wives went to the circus and went to the sideshow and saw um, just a girl with a basic deformity um, performing and felt sorry for and then got her husband to like write a law so I think sideshows have actually been outlawed since this is what I read I don't know if it's true because I haven't like followed up looking but sideshows have actually been or freak shows I should say freak shows have been banned since like the 1980s hmm. but I don't know how true that is because there's a recent oh this is something else we gotta go to let me read you this let me find it there is so I was looking up Southern Sideshows. There's something called the Southern Sideshow Hootenanny. <laughs> and it is an annual festival of sideshows and variety arts um, entering its third years in New Orleans. Oh. It's a grassroots organization made up of working performers and scholars from all over the U.S. 
and it's dedicated to preserving and celebrating the most unusual and American of art forms. And so, um, is that what the freak show is? The most unusual and American of art forms? I guess That's interesting. I think so, but I don't think I don't think it's. I don't know if it is truly American. Again, I need to go back and research. Yeah, I don't know that it is either. Because um, I want to say it's like Europe had freak shows before we did. And yet we are super good at exploiting things. We are excellent at exploiting <laughs> things. Yes. But, you know, during that time, like after the Civil War and um, before like the first or second war, um, world wars, that was like the main entertainments. Like mm-hmm. the circus came to town and everybody, like if you couldn't afford to go to the circus, you definitely went out and watched them unload from the train mm-hmm. or from the wagons. Or like whatever. in Dumbo. Good, wholesome family fun. It's the circus. <laughs> Yay. Everybody cry. The elephants are sad. <laughs> oh, I cannot watch Dumbo. I'm and not going to watch it. live version. Oh my That's God. That's the one I'm not, I'm not going to. I could not even handle the trailer on that. I, I couldn't either. I was like, I used to watch Dumbo. Well, maybe twice in my life I've watched Dumbo. And like the original like Disney one. And like that one where Dumbo's outside and the mama is inside and she's trying to reach him through oh the bars. And I was like, fuck God. you, Disney. Yes. So many, so many of our childhood psychological our, issues yes. come from Disney films. It's like it's how like, many times. the mothers. Every single fucking movie. Absolutely. Why do they all have to be orphans? They're always orphans. <laughs> Oh, you know, actually, my son told me something about that because he was like, yes, he's like, Disney likes to kill the mothers, mm-hmm. you know, and he said it's because, um, and I don't know if this is a fact, again, got to check it out, that um, Walt Disney was an orphan or his mother died at an early age or hmm. something like that. Got to look that up. But he was like telling me all these Disney facts. I was like, we got to take you to like Disney trivia night around here or something. <laughs> you on fire. You're like, come on, boy, you're going to win us lots of money. That's right. Win us a free meal. <laughs> free coffee for all. <laughs> exactly. Well, that is our show. That's our show. Absolutely. Follow us on Instagram, Strange South, The Strange South Podcast. Right. right on instagram and facebook and facebook we're named the same thing but we are just the strange south on the internet yes the strange south.com yes and you can see all of our episodes there with photos on our instagram and, and the show notes and the drink recipes and if you usually have a story or anything interesting to tell us please you know Tell us on Facebook. DM us. Do something. Yep. Do something. Do something. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. And six months later, he died of fart fart failure. (laughs) 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 This is what happens when you get too excited.